is the Starting Why Podcast. Here we ask entrepreneurs, actors, investors, innovative, and artists on the why. Why they are doing what they are doing, what motivates and drives them, and why can't they stop. We will start in five, four, three, two, one. Hey guys, hello and welcome. This is another episode of the Starting Why Podcast where we talk about the why and the mental framework of entrepreneurship. This is Joe, and today I have two guests here with me. Hey guys, can you introduce yourself? Klaus Vihe, uh, CEO and co-founder of 10X Innovation Lab and also the co-author of Global Class. Aaron McDaniel, co-author of uh, Global Class, co-founder of 10X Innovation Lab, uh, professor at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business. That is really, really cool. And you guys, uh, the thing that connects you is the global class, what we will be talking about pretty soon. When we talked before, the idea that brought you in my podcast was spoken in my words that basically entrepreneurs right now don't see their business global enough right from the start. Is that approximately true? And can you help us a little bit before before we talk about the main topic, how you arrived at this point of knowledge uh, where, where basically I also ended up after podcasting for eight years with the startup founders. <laughs> so, Joe, this is a really great point. So what's important here is that you don't want to think about being born global, meaning you don't want to attempt to have a company that has you know global scale immediately. You still need to find validation, proof and scale within an existing market of substance first before expanding. But what we found in our research of talking to over 400 executives from more than 50 countries, basically, that led the expansion of the world's fastest growing companies, is that it's important to think global day one, meaning you build your team, you build your product, you build your processes, you build your company culture in ways that can be not only universalized, but also localized for different markets. And uh, you know, a good story that puts it in the context we heard is from Frederick Mazala, who is the uh, founder and former CEO of BlaBlaCar, world's largest carpooling platform. Fred talked about how they thought about what, the, what he called building for two markets. So they were from France. And a lot of companies will build their business hard-coded for that initial market. So they would build a team of French people. They, in, in his case, they would think about French regulation. They would think about the French language in their app. But they built with the French and Spanish markets in mind from the beginning. So for their U, UI, UX, they thought about Spanish and French. They also thought about regulations in both countries. Uh, they also had a, a great uh, team building strategy related to that as well. But an important nuance there is they didn't launch in both markets at once, but they considered both markets as they built. So then it was easy to add market number two and three and four and five from there. And maybe just go back to a little bit the why we decided to write this book is because through a lot of the work that we've done at 10X Innovation Lab, we've been running a lot of acceleration programs with international governments from across the world who want to fund their entrepreneurs and support their entrepreneurs in scaling globally. And and there we saw a lot of common mistakes happening all the time. And we were like, why does this continuously happen? And we wanted to kind of explore, are there any existing resources for founders out there to learn about that journey, you know, taking a company from your initial market, as we say in the book, to international market, not your home market, because once you define a home market, it kind of creates that bias towards that market, essentially, right? And so we went on this, this discovery to kind of figure out, okay, what are some of the reasons why companies are successful and also why they're not successful? 
So up to, to, to this date, we've spoken to around 400 executives. And and, the, and Aaron alluded to a little bit in terms of team building, right? That's an important topic as well. I think it was around 95% of the people that we surveyed, uh, they say the biggest challenge for companies is to hire the right people and build the right teams. And to the point in terms of like expansion and building teams, we talk about a team building framework, the global class team building framework in the book, where you need to have the overlap between company knowledge and local knowledge. If you do, do not have that overlap, you're going to likely fail, meaning that you build teams to have that knowledge around how the organization work, the company core values, how to build coalition and buy-in within that organization. But then also you have that local knowledge, local networks, local business you know, expertise in that market to successfully scale and enter into that market. And so to the point of Blah Blah Car, they actually hired Spanish-speaking people, people in, and, and brought them to, to France, to the Blah Blah headquarter, to then learn about the Blah Blah way of doing things, understanding the culture, et cetera, and then plugging them into the Spanish country afterwards as well. And, and doing that also helped them with strategy building. So it wasn't just, hey, come here to learn about our culture, but it was as we're building the product and considering the Spanish market, can you give us your local insights so that we can build it in the right way? Because often what happens is companies don't think about this and then they run into problems later. What I would have now in mind is a young entrepreneur who's just listened to this and uh, I would be going, oh, uh, what should I do? Team strategy, market of substances. So first, let us start from from, from the start. You first need customers. You first need a market. Aaron, you talked about a market of substance. Can you elaborate on that? Because in the US, I would assume, well, more or less, give or take California, New York, good states, places to start. In Europe, it's quite different because if you're, for example, from Liechtenstein or Luxembourg, the markets are out of question, right, Klaus? Scandinavia may be big enough, but maybe not just Denmark. The UK with the Brexit, are they still big enough? So that would be something. Where do you where do you need to start thinking about this? Yeah, so I think I think this is a, a really good point. I think um You know, what we were saying before is that you need to be thinking about this from the beginning to build an organization accordingly. But choosing the right markets and the right customers are really important. And sometimes that might be in the market where you're from. Sometimes it might not be, right? Uh, and, and we also say, you know, you have to choose the right customer because companies often can run into trouble when they target the wrong customers or what sometimes entrepreneurs do, especially those that are less experienced and expanding to new markets, is they think organic growth means those are the markets we should go to. And just because you're getting organic growth does not mean those are the right markets to go to. Just because a market is big doesn't mean it's the right market to go to. Uh, as an example, uh, one company that we interviewed is Zipline, uh, which is a medical drone delivery company that, are, that is headquartered in Silicon Valley. Their initial markets were actually in East Africa countries like Rwanda, not the US, because they deliver medical supplies. Well, in the US, that transportation system is very well established. Also in the US, you can't just fly a drone anywhere. Air traffic control rules will stop you. In Rwanda, that's no problem, right? So, so it's about thinking about the right markets for different reasons beyond just the size of the market. Yeah, I mean, there, there's different examples, right? You know, Sindesk, a Danish company, they chose their initial market to scale in the U.S. because SaaS models were much more, you know, you know, common in the U.S. versus in Europe and Denmark back at that time. But another example where it's actually uh, where they chose their, you know, sometimes where people define it as their home market 
is Spotify. They actually started to scale in Sweden as a first and not go all the way to the US because sort of the regulatory environment and the culture around piracy was much more allowing for that business model to flourish. To give you a little simple example is that there was a, a party called the Piracy Party within the, uh, the, the Swedish parliament that kind of you know, obviously indicated that it's very much a, sort of a, an area that's okay to, to explore in that market. And so comparison to the U.S. where there's a lot of existing competitors, they were fighting against each, each other for market share, but also fighting against the regulatory environment as well. So Spotify scaled in Sweden, scaled into other near markets, and then later to the U.S. and ended up being arguably the winner in that space. Mm -hmm. Understood. Okay. First, you need to think about what is your market? What are your clients? And actually, uh, the story I always hear when you have new entrepreneurs from the very beginning, they say the target group is male and female, college educated between 25 and 34. Everybody says that. Like Everybody has the same target group. <laughs> Guys, start thinking, please. You, it, They, the audience can't see you, but you both guys are smiling. Can you, yeah. Do you also have a story for that? So I'll say a couple of things. One, to the point of what you said before, when I talk to my students about being a successful entrepreneur, if I said you had to encapsulate entrepreneurial success in one word, the answer is customers. So Joe, you're exactly right. It is, if you don't have a business, <laughs> if you don't have customers, right? So in terms of your question, Joe, Uh, one thing that we discovered in our research is that companies that are successful in reaching global scale often tap into this new type of culture that we labeled as community culture. And what that means is there, there are niches, there are groups of people all over the world that transcend borders, right? So they're not just 18 to 35-year-old males or something like that, right? They, they're coalesced around a specific interest. So a great uh, story we heard in our research was around Airbnb. So as they went into new markets, they targeted marathon runners. So obviously, you know, you can tell that comparison. Not 18 to 35-year-old people who are college educated, but marathon runners. Because marathon runners have a specific culture. They have a specific language and vocabulary they use. And so you tap into that, those type of things cross borders. And they're very well connected. So you get a few well-connected people in those type of communities. And all of a sudden, they're socializing the message for you across borders. So you're exactly right with what you said. Okay, so we have the market, we have the customers, and what do I need to think differently from the very beginning on? What, what, what are the things you need to have in mind if you really want to build a global company, a global startup? I think one of the aspects is to build diverse teams and a diverse organization, right? Because essentially, when you're solving problems, you want diverse perspectives to build a good product, right? So to the point of the entrepreneur concept that we've developed in the book, which is, I, I believe we showed you that on our last call, which is a pyramid, we have three different layers, uh, which is also built on the entrepreneurial concept, the agile mindset. So in the bottom, you have an agile mindset. And then, you know, companies of, you know, uh, of large sizes wanted to have these agile fingers within their organizations, which is the middle layer of that pyramid called the company mindset. Those two together form the intrapreneurial mindset, right? But what is the tip of, the, of that pyramid is a cultural mindset, global mindedness, cultural curiosity that allows business leaders to build global organizations, but also to understand and have empathy with international markets and local ecosystems to better adapt that business model for successful scale. And so we believe that you should also hire these entrepreneurial uh, you know, talent and leaders in your organization early on, 
right? Because that, that allows you to build a culture that is much more appealing to a global workforce, right? It also enables you to build much more towards a distributed organization that then allows you later down the road to tap into other markets and accelerate into those markets as well. And so building a diverse team from the get-go prohibits you from hard-coding the business around that market you're in. So classic examples are Japan. They hire Japanese people. They hard-code the business around the Japanese market. Expansion is product expansion. is not global expansion. And so you know, to avoid that is thinking about how you hire the right talent from the get-go. That's not just great in their functional role, but also great in terms of having a global mindset as well. And I really want to highlight something that Klaus just said, because this is really important. And the comparison we make is back to the dot-com boom. So imagine you were back at the dot-com boom, and you found this thing called the internet, and you realized that it could be a powerful tool to disrupt a bunch of industries, right? We see the same thing today. It's just instead of the internet, it's distributed work, decentralized teams, and these economic opportunities all over the world. So, you know... It's, it's not just about hiring people who happen to be located near where you have an office, but it's building a distributed team all over the world and a number of the things related to diversity and other things that Klaus talked about. And just so you know, is one of the reasons why it's also becoming even more important is to increase competition around the world, right? There is so much innovation mm-hmm. happening in other ecosystems and more capital being invested in there that companies need to be better at building a global business and have empathy with local environments to then better localize that business. To stay competitive, you know, classic example is Uber. They got out competed by Didi and other, you know, competitors in local markets. And so you need to be better at, at understanding how to address a local need and local problem to then scale in that market. Very, very interesting. So what I take from there is when I think about my my company, of course, remote teams, global teams, um, but also don't hard code the language, don't hard code the user interface and be pretty adaptable in terms of legal framework. I know um, everybody who's who's been working like I in financial services, statutory law versus case law will know what I'm talking about here. Um, it, 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 it can be horribly complicated, but you should not, from the start, make one fix, one decision that is in, uh, irreversible that just wouldn't work. And when you talked about like having the local feel, having the local teams, I was pretty pretty smiling because um, there are many big companies in the world that always swing between doing everything local and doing everything centralized. Where do you see like uh, in art they have like the golden cut, the perfect proportion? Where would you see it in terms of local versus global, local versus centralized? I mean, it's a great example, and I and I think all organizations are battling that issue. And I don't think there's a one true answer. What's important is that you are able to build that dialogue between local teams and the mothership or the headquarter, or however you want to define it, right? And create communication channels between both, right? And I think that's often where things break down when it comes to building a global organization. So, how do you build the right structures? To support that, but also how do you build the right framework to be able to do discovery and localize that business for successful scale? So what we talk about is a new concept called global agile, 
where you are basically granting autonomy and trust to local teams and allowing them to identify what is the right business model in that local market. And then after they have then identified that, then aligning it with corporate strategy as well. And so finding that right balance between localization and complexity, which Aaron can dive into as well. And, and to the point that Klaus just mentioned, in the book, we actually talk about a job function pendulum. Right. When things go from being centralized to regionalized to localized and back and forth, depending on where you're at in that growth process, whether you're in one country in a region or multiple countries. Uh, I think some of the other things you think about is whether you're product or engineering driven versus brand driven or otherwise, there's certain decisions of what would be centralized versus not. To the point of what Klaus talked about related to autonomy and trust, we introduce what we call uh, the autonomy curve. And so the amount of autonomy you grant should change depending on where you're at in that expansion process. During market entry, as Klaus was alluding to, you need to give high autonomy to the local team to figure out how the business needs to be localized. But then as you start to get into market growth, the next stage, you drop that autonomy a bit because you need to be mindful of creating scalability amongst multiple countries. But then in those initial stages, you're often only capturing a very surface layer of the market opportunity. So once you start to get into market maturity in a market, then you need to delve deeper. You need to have more local resources. You need to localize more to truly capture that whole market. So what, what you talked about is an important thing to think about, but there's a, it's very multifaceted, as you can probably tell from our answers. Yeah, exactly. I I always try to have like one very simple question everybody's asking, but there's no explicit right answer to it. I was I was wondering, uh, we're now recording for 20 minutes, and I do believe our audience gets a very uh, slowly gets a good idea what is in your book. Uh, by the way, it will be linked down here in the show notes. I, I was wondering, in your research, did you find a certain type of entrepreneur that is very suitable to build this global class startups? Or is it basically anybody can do it? Yeah. So to, to Klaus's point, when he outlined with the pyramid example, entrepreneurs can be not only people leading expansion, but can be entrepreneurs themselves. In fact, if you are entrepreneurial, if you have this global mindedness, as a company founder, your company is going to be an advantage because you're going to think about more than just your initial market. You're going to build things for scale. Mm -hmm. So definitely... And, and, and you know how do you go about doing that? A lot of it is really just exposure. Uh, we found a lot of these people have formative experiences that gave them knowledge that there was a world beyond their backyard. But a lot of founders, companies we found that were particularly successful at expanding to new markets, at one point, one of the founders will actually go and be part of that expansion and live in that other region to show the importance and to, to keep that connection within the leadership put within that local market. And it, it, it doesn't have to be a top-down, you know, um, driven approach, right? It can also be from the bottom up. As an example, and keep me honest here on this, Aaron, uh, when we spoke to the head of international at Zoom, one account manager, I believe, saw opportunities and traction in Mexico. And he basically tapped the team and said, hey, there's something there, there, here. We're seeing increased sales and increased interest in the product. You know, can we invest more time in that? And he would gladly lead that essentially. So that was an account manager at the bottom of the organization, not an executive level that saw an opportunity there. And so I think, you know, m many organizations think it's like a, a top strategic board member conversation. It also sometimes can come from within as well. To give another example, uh, I think it's called Mesh uh, Meltwater. Meltwater is a Norwegian company. 
Uh, and they actually are an interesting organization. The way that they expanded was actually people-driven within the company. It was basically saying someone from Manchester said, hey, there's something over here in, in the UK. I want to explore that market for the business, for the company. And then they send the person over because he had experience there. And so instead of like being the CEO saying XYZ company, it was actually very much people driven, the entrepreneurs within the company that saw that opportunity uh, in other markets. And the last very important question for every entrepreneur who's listening to this, maybe even on startup.radio, our internet radio station, where there's always Friday sometime for starting why, if you're already heading a large organization, we know from our analytics, most of those people are on an executive level in a medium and large company. How can you identif identify those entrepreneur personalities? That's uh, our that's survey. Really our survey. Yeah, we we have a uh, are you an entrepreneur survey on our website globalclassbook.com that is uh, that is worth checking out. You know, I, I think I think it. Well, what one thing we haven't really talked about that I think is is pretty crucial to things is is what we call the global agile methodology or global lean methodology. So what we found in our research is that the pure agile methodology does not really work in a global context, right? Because it's all about pivoting and iterating and changing. And that's great for one market. But if you do that in 10 or 20 different markets, you know, depending on where you're at, you know, in the growth process, all of a sudden that creates a lot of problems uh, because you have all this complexity that's very hard to manage. And so you have to take a new approach that, that we can talk about and we built some tools around and, and actually got endorsed by Alex uh, Osterwalder, maker of the Business Model Canvas, Steve Blank and Eric Reese around that concept. Um, so having that global agile methodology is particularly important. But you know, in terms of finding the, the right people, I think it comes down to one word and that's balance. So it's someone who can accurately understand and go through that, that localization discovery process to learn what needs to be changed and what doesn't, to be mindful that things need to be localized to be able to penetrate a market, but being mindful of scalability and being able to take localizations and deploy them in other markets and things. So it's sort of holistically the combination of that balance as well as that entrepreneur mindset that Klaus outlined. I think it's obviously looking at your diversity within your organization, where people are from, to see uh, are, are there any ones that are having these cultural experiences abroad and also coming from unique markets that they can tap into, right? So it's doing that assessment internally, what we you know uh, do internal sort of capability assessment within the organization. I think that's important in early stages when you want to expand the business and saying, you know, who do we have within our organization that we can leverage that can then tap into local insights? But another thing that's really important to think about is that what channels and where can we actually find these entrepreneurs, as you mentioned, right? It could be the strangest of all, of all places. Abe Smith was a language teacher in a rural fishing village in Kushu, Japan. You know, finding language teachers in other markets, that could be a channel, right? Or it could be these entrepreneurial communities out there in the world that has a very eclectic, diverse international environment where you go in and have conversation with, with these aspiring, agile you know, thinkers and leaders, right? It could be international business schools. It could be different communities that attract international-minded people. It could be a dancing class at a, at a tango class in, in, in Copenhagen, Denmark. You, you never know, right? It's tapping into these unique international environments. That's where you can find the entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, down here in the show notes, I just uh, linked the website. Uh, there will be also a link that you'll be able to take the entrepreneur survey and of course, learn more about the global agile mindset. 
Guys, we're now talking for approximately 25 minutes. I would like to say thank you very much. It was a pleasure having you as guest. We link both of you with your LinkedIn profiles. We will have the link to the book, of course, and to your uh, book's website with the Entrepreneur Survey. Is that good? Awesome. Awesome. Is it okay just as, as a final statement here? I just want to say one thing, because if you truly want to become a global organization, it requires leadership commitment. That's absolutely key. It's not just about sending someone to an international market and say, you go fix that. It's actually from a leadership perspective, getting them involved and engaged with that international expansion and growth. To give a simple example that Aaron and I put uh, you know, in our book uh, is about you know, Rakuten had that leadership commitment, right? There's another story that we shared in the, uh, that we haven't shared in the book where we say, you know, uh, actually we did share that in the book where they did Englandization, Eng- Englishization, English Englishization from Rakuten. So the CEO and founder says, "We're going to speak English at Rakuten Japan." That's an absolute requirement. Guess what? The chief well-being officer, the guy that leads HR at Rakuten, did not speak English at all, and they had to force the executives and the entire organization to speak a different language that then enable them to be successful in international markets. Think about that. A Japanese company doing that, which is very unique and rare, which helped them a lot. And it sort of shapes the way you think when you build a business. Well, only thing left for me to say, great closing words. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Thanks Joe. Thanks, Joe. Cheers. Have a good day, guys. Bye-bye. <laughs>